I'm Jeff Cohen. In August of 2021, in partnership with the OU, we launched Saturday to Shabbos. Our goal was and is to present real-life stories of people from diverse backgrounds who transcended the circumstances of their birth to embrace Torah Judaism. So we'll revisit some of our favorite episodes to celebrate our first anniversary. And joining me now is Saturday to Shabbos producer, Gary Wallach. Hey, Gary. Hi, Jeff, and Mazel Tov. <laughs> yes, Mazel Tov to both of us. Amen. So before we get into particular episodes, let's talk a little bit about our experiences so far. So what, if anything, has surprised you as far as presenting our collection of stories? I think what surprised me the most is that, you know, although our guests have come from incredibly diverse backgrounds, there have been so many common storylines, you know, being far away from, or at least somewhat remote from Judaism, getting that completely unforeseen bit of inspiration, sometimes over and over again. And then the realization that the thing that the person was missing and even resisting was the thing they wanted and needed the most. I mean, you just see it in all of these stories in one way or another. And uh, so I'll ask you the same question. What surprised you so far now that we're about 50 episodes into this? I found it really interesting how you and I, who are both on our own personal journeys, we're interviewing so many diverse people. But like you said, with these themes, I keep hearing things that I can relate back to my own story. And that's when I get like really excited because I can relate to it and it has a lot to do with the journey I was on and things I know about you. So I love when we have those personal connections. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So why don't we hear from some of our favorite guests that you and I handpicked after nearly 50 episodes together. And we should say for the ones we didn't pick, it's not because we don't love those stories. We also didn't want to do an eight-hour podcast, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I think we should start with a story that we've heard so many times of a person with really little to no religious background who became inspired in a completely unexpected way. I remember our episode with Sivan Rav Meir, which originally went public last fall, She's a television star in Israel who began as a child journalist. When she was just 15 years old, she was doing a story about three young Israeli women that she had met who were obviously religious. Three religious girls were found in the state of Israel. It's a scoop, you know, it was like UFOs <laughs> from Israel. Religious girls today. And they were laughing at me, basically, and they gave me that interview. But they said, listen, don't publish, you know, what, we, what you asked because your questions are silly. It's clueless, you know. So I said, okay, so what do you suggest? And they said, in Hebrew, they said two words that changed my life. They said, bo'i le Shabbat. Bo'i le Shabbat meaning come for Shabbos. Bo, bo'i, it's come. Come for Shabbat, come for Shabbos. Come and see what Shabbat is all about. So I came as an investigative journalist, not as a Jewish teenager. I wanted to see what those, you know, UFOs are doing. And I just fell in love. You know, I came, uh, the first Shabbat was in the city of Be'er Sheva. It's in the south of Israel. So I took the bus from Herzliya to Beersheba, and uh, the rest is, you know, history in a way, because uh, it was the first Shabbat I kept, and suddenly uh, Judaism was relevant and, uh, and alive, you know, for the first time. I always thought it's so primitive, it has nothing to say. I didn't need it. It was something ancient, and suddenly it became really needed. Isn't it amazing the power of the Shabbos meal? Like now that I'm observing with my family, when we have someone over who's at the very beginning, and they have that meal and they see how beautiful it is with our family, how calm and relaxed it is, how inviting it is. It's like such a powerful thing to show someone who's just at the beginning and wondering if they're going to like progress with this. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many interesting perspectives that people have offered about the inspiration they get on Shabbos, especially for the first time. I mean, I almost cried when you were first telling the story of what your son was saying about what he liked about having Shabbos with you and your wife, where he said, you know, I get to have you all to myself all day. Uh, I'm obviously paraphrasing a little there, but that, <laughs> I thought that was so beautiful. And there's something magical about the chicken and the kugel and all that. It makes you realize, oh, I've been missing this for a long time. Why was that? So, yeah, I totally agree. And by the way, the story you're referencing about my son of him saying this was like my favorite day I ever had with you the first time my wife and I kept Shabbos. When I tell that story to my non-observant friends, they say, well, we could give up our phones and TV and driving for a day just to have like a really present day with our family, but they would never do it. Like it's just theoretical and it would never actually happen. But Shabbos gives you this framework to make sure you're doing it at least once a week. Yeah, and it gives you more than that, which is, you know, something you can hear when you listen to our episodes. People elaborate about what's so beautiful about their Shabbos tables, and it would be a shame to miss that, even if you were turning off all of the electronics. For sure. So our stories don't usually end, though, with someone having a nice Shabbos dinner and then taking on full Torah observance. There are almost always challenges that follow. The first one is often tension within a family if not everybody sees the need or reason for taking on Yiddishkeit. I remember in January of 2022, we heard about this from Sasha Silber. She's an accomplished concert pianist who began learning the Torah portion of the week. She was inspired to put her knowledge into practice. So not only did she have to balance her performance schedule at Shabbos, she had to keep what she was doing from her parents. And I was already hiding the fact that my kitchen was mostly kosher with a few tray plates on top of each shelf so that if I had my parents come and they wanted to take something from my fridge and it wasn't, I'm not sure what they're going to do, it was fine. Um, so I had Wait, this whole... you're, you're hiding it because you're not ready to tell your parents that you're making these changes in your life? There was about a year plus where I had already slowly, slowly, slowly started to keep Shabbat. There was a moment where I tried to take everything on very quickly and that didn't stick and it went kind of backfired. Somewhere along this part of your story has to be a conversation with your parents where you're saying, this is going to be my life. So at what point do you kind of open up more to your family and say, this is where I want to live and how I want to live? So that wasn't one conversation. That was many, 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 many conversations. <laughs> I'm sure. It was, it was very difficult. A lot of that difficulty is my own fault. Maybe, and I, I'll never know, but maybe had I been more forthcoming from the beginning and sharing it and making it a little bit more normal to them in the beginning and not having sprung this on them, it probably would have been easier for them. And that was my mistake. It was very tough. It was very tough to bring them on board with something that they don't really know so much about. And so ultimately I got where I wanted to be with that relationship, but it definitely took a lot of time. This is like such a sensitive and emotional topic for me personally, having gone through this with my own family. And I don't remember which interview it was, but we made this point that if at the end of this, you're estranged from your parents, then you clearly did something wrong. So she looks like she has some regrets about how she played it. And it looks like she probably got back to a good place with her family, but she sees things she could have done differently. And I always think about that with my own parents, that there were some rocky parts, but I always kept in my mind, I didn't want to lose the closeness with them. And that was like the guiding principle of how I took them through this journey. 
Yeah, that's a very important thing, and we're about to hear it with our next clip. But before we get to that, you know, one of the things about Sasha Silber's story that I found interesting is that her stalling tactic has to be the most innovative way to avoid telling your parents that you're taking on Torah observance. I mean, putting the trafe plates on top of the, the kosher ones, it was very clever. And I'm glad it worked out for Sasha, but we also are starting to see a theme here that we're about to see with some other people as well. And that is, and that we saw with Sivan, which was that it can be hard to balance work with Shabbos observance. That's a struggle in and of itself. Yeah, I agree. And Sasha's challenges were certainly considerable. But so was Shannon Newsons. With what can be argued was a more difficult twist, Shannon grew up in an evangelical Christian family in Texas. Her father was a minister whose specialty was convincing Jews that they needed to be Christians. Shannon followed in his footsteps, but she became convinced of the truth of the Torah in large part because of the work of Rabbi Tovia Singer, who in a 26-part series of lectures debunks evangelical claims that the Torah contains language about the Christian Messiah. In January, Shannon told us about a dramatic moment in her life when she shared Singer's lessons with her father. There was one instance where my father was coming over and he had called me and I wasn't anywhere close to home. I was on my way home and I had happened to be learning all day that day. So he didn't just find one thing. My father found everything. It was all like laid out for him. I didn't have a chance to put it away. So... When I got there, he had quite a bit of time to see it and go through it, and I walked into him. He had a very disturbed look on his face, and he was ready to lecture. I sat down, and he said, yep, you need to talk to me. I see what you're learning, and he was a detective with the sheriff's department, besides being a, a minister, and he said, you've changed the way you dress. you changed the way you eat. I see what you're looking at. You're getting into a cult and we need to learn together, and I need to bring you back. My father, I have tremendous respect for my father. I uh, didn't want to hurt him or offend him, so I said, sure, okay, we'll learn together. I have a lot of questions. I've been looking into a lot of things. Maybe you can answer some of these questions. And I gave him the same series that I had learned and told him to take a look at it. So I thought that would give me like a, a good week or two to like process things and, and get the courage to like tell him everything. But he stayed the night that night and I didn't sleep because I heard, I heard that rabbi's voice just, you know, in the next room all night long. And I was like, everything that I heard the rabbi say, I was just dreading, oh my gosh, what does he think about that? What does he think about that? And you know, how does, how's he going to answer that? And I was coming up with all of the ways that he was going to argue with me and try to present another perspective. And then at three o'clock in the morning, he knocked on my door and asked if I was awake. And of course, I was like sitting on the edge of my bed scared. So I was awake and he came in and he sat on the edge of my bed and he was absolutely silent. He looked at the wall in this catatonic state which really threw me off. And I was like, Daddy, what's going on? He said, that rabbi was right. He's right about everything. He said, I took my Bible in there, and I was comparing everything that he said, and I was looking to disprove things, and I can't. He's right about everything. And then he described how 
The rug had just been pulled out from under him. And what do I do with this information? Wow, that, that's really quite a scene. And it's so intense and interesting in so many ways. I mean, firstly, Shannon's love and respect for her father was there throughout. I mean, she was willing to let him offer his opinion about what she was doing and learning before she offered her own. And I'm really impressed by her father, who was willing to consider what Rabbi Singer was saying. And by the way, I have listened to much of Singer's 26-part series, and I would urge everybody to do that. It's really thorough and carefully researched, and it provides important counter-arguments to pitches from evangelicals about why Jews should accept their misinterpretations of what the Hebrew Bible says. Anyway, Shannon went on to have an Orthodox conversion and to do counter-missionary work, which she clearly sees as a sort of tikkun for taking some Jews away from Judaism. And her father is now a Ben Noach. And she can tell you where to find the best bacon double cheeseburger in Israel. Kosher, of <laughs> course. So how about you, Jeff? What did you like most about Shannon's story? I really picked up on that word cult that she mentioned because it has come up countless times in her interviews where when someone is thinking of going on this path and they mention it to someone close to them who doesn't know a lot about it, they say, you're joining a cult. And once you use that word, like the negative connotation is so powerful. And I actually understand it because as someone who grew up in New City, like right next door to Muncie, like looking at the way they were addressed and how they were carrying themselves and how different it was for me, I could see at that age, I might have just casually thrown out that word. Oh, that's a cult. Who would want to do that? And it's almost like a thing to think about from a marketing perspective for Orthodox Jews of like why that term is even coming up when it's really the furthest thing from that. And yet it's thrown around so casually as if that's what you're doing anytime you want to explore your Judaism. Yeah, it's tough. And if you respond to that claim that you're being part of a cult, then automatically people see that as the response of a person who's been brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, so it's, it, and it is sort of hard to explain how within the framework of what you're doing and what you're learning, there's actually a lot of latitude and there's a lot of room for individuality and there's really nothing cultish about it at all. And we also should point out that not every story and every interview we've done has had this kind of drama of what Shannon experienced. I know one challenge that pretty much all Jews face is how to balance work and Torah observance. So I really like the story of engineer and rabbi Moise Navon. When he was young, his parents wanted to make sure he had an edge when it came to figuring out a career path. So they did something about it. At the end of high school, when I needed to try to figure out a major, you know, I knew that I liked uh, math and science. I wanted to do something with math and science, but I had no idea what. And so um, for a series of weeks, my mom invited every professional that we could think of that, that I said, you know, oh, you know, I want to be a doctor. Maybe I'll be a doctor. So she invited this surgeon we know. And we had dinner, and he said, you don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> so I said, okay. I'll take your advice. And then I said, oh, you know, maybe I'll be an architect. So she invited an architect, and he said, you don't want to be an architect. And then she invited the engineer, and the engineer said, you want to be an engineer. It's the greatest thing, and I'll give you a job when you graduate. Wow. So I said, I'm an engineer. So you were being offered a job four years ahead of time, basically. That is correct. And not only that, not only did he come through, you know, in, in my second year in college, he already brought me in as a student intern at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Well, so with NASA. Yeah. So every time we finish these interviews and then 
I come out of the recording and my wife will say, how did it go? There are certain times where I will tell her, I actually heard something really practical that I think we should do in our family. And I told her, you know what, with our three kids, as they get older and they start thinking about careers, rather than have these hypothetical discussions about what it might mean to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it would be, let's bring people over in these professions and let our kids ask them questions and understand if it makes them more or less interested in a particular field. I thought it was one of the best pieces of advice that we heard from any of our guests. You wouldn't happen to be a guidance counselor, would you, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't you, think so, but be a maybe good it's one. a side, side hustle. Yeah, so when I heard this story from Moise, it reminded me of the Mel Brooks shtick, Jews in Space. Do you remember that one from, it was like a fake movie trailer from at the end sure. of History of the World Part One. Anyway, Moise Navon's story kind of reminds me of that, except that I guess he actually never made it into space. But yeah, it's always fun to see the care and the concern parents have for their kids, especially when it comes to careers. And I have to say that, hopefully, without being overly critical, that there seems to have been a time when Jewish parents weren't quite as concerned with their children's spiritual lives as they were with how they would make a living. I'm sure there were lots of reasons for this, and good ones, especially 50, 60, 70 years ago. But now it seems that with all the resources there are for Jewish learning and practice, not to mention a much more welcoming and loving strain of Orthodox Judaism than there were even a generation or two ago, that there's no excuse for parents to do that anymore. So I'm all for like really great careers, but I'm also for making sure that our young children have the right spiritual guidance. I also love in his story that even though he was ultimately successful when he got involved with autonomous vehicles, and that's where he made the kind of money that he could ultimately get more and more deeper into Torah study, which is what he's doing now. I like how he told the story where it took him seven or eight tries that he was involved in the engineering at different companies that didn't work out. He never gave up believing that he had the skills and he would eventually find the thing that could be successful. So the perseverance in his story was really, really inspiring. Yeah, and now he's developing vehicles that he says are safer than the ones that we drive ourselves. So is there any better way to show respect to a Jewish mother? (laughs) (laughs) Well said. So now I'm thinking back to our very, very first episode when we launched back in August of 2021, and we actually had a really big name that day. We had Jamie Geller. So she's obviously, as many know, a television star, producer, writer, and chef. Anybody who's cooking kosher is looking at her stuff and going through her recipes. So she's famous for many very popular cookbooks. So you might expect, as I did, that when she got married, she would have dazzled her husband with her cooking skills from the outset. So I asked her to tell me about those skills. None. I was like an embarrassment. I was a disaster on wheels. I used my oven for storage in Manhattan when I was a TV producer. I never turned the thing on. And um, my husband's like, what's for dinner? And I'm like, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> like, what are you, like, who are you looking at? And um, I always say I didn't know the difference between a spatula and a saucepan. And I, I didn't really care. And luckily, he comes from a long line of great cooks, both his mother, his stepmother, his father, his uncles. They all, like, love cooking, were great cooks. Um, The whole, like, male side of the Geller family worked in catering for many, many, many years. It was in his blood. To this day, he loves to cook. And he taught me how to cook. By the way, we've spoken to so many people who are in entertainment fields, musicians, stand-up comedians, and we've asked them the same question. Did they know at an early age that they had this special skill? I think she's maybe the only person who didn't think she had that skill and discovered it later and got to such a level of success that you would assume she was doing it since age five. 
Yeah, I think when you're as smart and as talented and as energetic as she is, I think you can take on things later in life and, and really, really make a go of them. As we've seen with her position at Aish and uh, with other things that she's done in her career, she's really amazing. And one of the things that I really loved about her was her humility, which carried over to the way she treated you. It was your first interview for Saturday to Shabbos, and she was so complimentary. I remember at least three times when she said something like, that's such a great question, Jeff. So I'll always like her for that. And not all TV personalities are so genuinely humble and nice. Yeah, she was humble. And I remember her also saying in the middle of the interview as I was asking her different questions, she said, it's almost like you researched my life story before this interview. And I said, in fact, I did. You were the first interview. So yes, we spent considerable time learning your background and figuring out the right questions to ask you. Yeah, she's really awesome. I'm, I'm really glad we had her as the number one episode. So soon after we had Jamie Geller on, one of our next guests was Saul Blinkoff. And I'm really fascinated by his saga from aspiring artist to Disney animator to Disney director and, of course, is a Balchuva. Last summer, he told us a story about the latitude he had and exercised as a new film director. And the first movie I directed was a Winnie the Pooh movie. And the very first day on that movie, there's a big drawing of the Hundred Acre Wood where Winnie the Pooh lives. And I, as the director, have to sign the drawing to approve it so it can go to the color department to get painted. And I look at it, and Winnie the Pooh's house, he lives in a tree, and I'm like, everything looks good. Everyone leaves the room, I sign it, and I think to myself, wait, Disney artists, like, they hide things in the movies. <laughs> Don't tell me that's I'm gonna true. I'm going to hide something. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of it is. Some of it is. Some of it's not. So I'm like, well, I have to be part of that Disney legacy. So I sharpen the pencil. I go over to Winnie the Pooh's house. And next to his doorway, I drew in a mezuzah. Oh, that's awesome. I hid a mezuzah. So now he's not Winnie the Pooh. He's Winnie the Jew. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> True story. Beautiful. And then the next movie I directed was Kronk's New Groove, the sequel to Emperor's New Groove. I'm reading the script. It says Kronk gets married. I'm like, this is great. I'll give him a chuppah. And when you watch the movie, there's a moment where Kronk steps on the glass. Mazel tov. <laughs> it's in the movie. <laughs> that story about Winnie the Pooh, I cannot tell you how many listeners after they heard that episode reached out to me and said i had to look that up i had to go find that scene on youtube and in fact i do see the mezuzah that story is absolutely true and they loved it i can't remember whether i watched that with my kids we might have if that's the case i missed the mezuzah but i'm gonna have to go back now and look for it with my kids of course that'll be great but yeah saul was really a trip he just boundless energy which i guess you must need if you're a film director trying to guide the conversation with saul is like throwing a lasso around the neck of a, a wild bronco you just don't know where it's gonna go but i really love that episode saul was great he also showed for our listeners, particularly people who are younger and starting out in their career, who maybe want to do something in Hollywood, but think, wait, if I'm going to be observant, it's going to be at the expense of a Hollywood career. And I think he dispelled that rumor by showing that he's gone pretty far in his own right and hasn't sacrificed any of his religious beliefs. Yeah, and we've seen that in, in more than one episode where someone said, I just didn't know if I could pull off that balancing act, but it turns out that... If you put your principles first and you're very forthright and open and honest about it, eventually it's going to work out, even if it's a bit of a struggle at first. I think it even goes further than that, because people who are worried about balancing their career and tour observance, I don't think balance is even the right word. They often find that their career takes off once they make that commitment. We saw that with a lot of the musicians that we spoke to who told us Friday night and Saturday are the biggest nights for gigs. There's no way I can give that up. 
But then once they made that commitment, they started finding out all the other gigs they were going to get through the Jewish world, and their career just like skyrocketed. Makes one think, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So finally, one of my favorite guests was Cyrus Abbey, a well-known New York attorney who joined us just this past April. Cyrus is such a mensch, and we could have highlighted so many parts of his story, but there's one that could have been a scene from a James Bond movie, if James Bond had been a Jewish lawyer, of course. A few decades ago, Abby was working to get Jewish dissidents out of Romania, which was complicated by the fact that Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu wanted to keep them in the country. That prompted Cyrus Abbey to take a trip to Romania over four decades ago to try to get as many people out as possible. I went around speaking to people and asking if they needed help, and they would give me information. I was followed all the time. In the middle of one time leaving one Romanian home where the person had said, my apartment is wired, I can't talk to you here, come out on the porch. He then turned on the radio full blast in his room so no microphones in the room could pick it up. And then we went on the porch and he told me his story. As I left that place about midnight that night with another woman who also hadn't been allowed to leave but fortunately was an interpreter, so she was able to help me, as we were leaving, it was absolutely desolate on the street. It was as dark as could be. And um, we're walking back from this person's home. A car pulls along the side of the street. Person gets out of the car, runs, swings at me, stops an inch away from my face, pulls back, runs back into the car and drives away. Whoa. Scary as could be, I was scared out of my life, so was the girl, and then I turned to my interpreter and I said to her, that's probably the best news we could get. And she said, why? I said, because if they wanted to get rid of me, there's nobody else here. Nobody would have seen anything. They could have easily shot me, killed me, done whatever they wanted with me here. But all they really wanted to do was scare me. They're not going to scare me because I'm going to do this. And now that I know that they won't touch me because I was in and out of the American embassy, I had latched up with reporters from Reuters. So they know if they do something to me, they've got a problem. And Ceausescu is in America now. And so they didn't do that. When I got to the airport, they grabbed me. They tried to take everything away from me, but I had smuggled out other copies of things anyway. And they weren't going to let me leave unless I signed a confession written in Romanian. What did they want to say? Surrounded, surrounded soldiers. Well, they told me it was admitting that I had violated all the laws and I was doing all sorts of wrong things and everything else like that, and they wouldn't let me get on the plane. I was brave in those days. I don't know if I would do it now. I wasn't married at that time, no children. And I basically turned to them and I said to them, you know, you can do away with me, and it might stop a few Jews from leaving this country. But it'll be on the front pages of every single newspaper in America if I'm not on that plane tonight, because everybody knows when I'm coming back. And if that happens while Ceausescu is there, what kind of a trip he's going to have with the fact that Romania has just gotten rid of an American on his trip there. So it'll be on every front page. And I doubt that any of you guys here will be alive when he comes back, because he'll kill anybody who ruined his trip to America. And you want me to sign something? I said, I'll sign something. And I took out a piece of paper and I wrote, things were taken from me at the airport. <laughs> okay? I gave it to them, and just before the plane was to take off, they escorted me, put me on the plane. And they said, don't come back. And the people, all those people, I got them out very quickly. All the people that I had met there, I got out. We got out hundreds, thousands of people this way. So he used this phrase, I was brave in those days. This is beyond bravery. This almost cost him his life, either to be locked up or maybe even something worse. 
And if you think about how things are these days and the risks that people take when they're in foreign countries, if they get caught doing something and, and how the justice system will work in other countries, here's a guy who was like very comfortable as a New York attorney and decided that this mattered to him so much that he really did literally risk his life to make something happen. And he was successful at it. Yeah, I believe the term is Messiris Nefesh, self-sacrifice. I mean, thank God, you know, nothing happened to him. He was not harmed in any way. But I would put that in the category of total self-sacrifice. He put his life on the line to help thousands of people, and he did it. And that's one of the reasons I admire him so very, very much. And that also reminds me that we literally could have done this for every single episode that we've done. Some inspiration you could take or a life lesson you could take or something that could help you on your own path. And I know, like we said, we can't do every single one. But the more that we were listening to these, I kept thinking about all these other interviews that we've done and, and the really interesting things that people have had to say about their life. Well, what that means is that people are going to have to find the podcast series on uh, whatever podcast platform they prefer, if they haven't done that already, or go to Tachlis Media, Google it, and listen to every episode. You can listen in your car, you can listen uh, on your walk, on your jog, or whatever. And uh, if you haven't heard all the stories I would recommend that you do so because they're all inspirational in their own way. So kudos to you, Gary, for the work that you do. Thank you. And, and to you as well. It's really been a pleasure. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of these. Which leads me into my next question, Gary. What are you looking forward to in the coming year with Saturday to Shabbos? I want to meet Cyrus Abbey in person. That would be great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but more than anything, I think, is that I really want this series to have a big impact I know, as you do, that there are lots of good Jewish people out there looking for meaning in their lives, but they might not know exactly where to look for it. And the people that you talk with every week are modern, accomplished, talented individuals who found something they needed and wanted in Torah Judaism. And every single one of their stories is relatable. So if our episodes inspire even one person to go beyond themselves to reconsider what they were taught about Judaism when they were young and to take their first step on the path of authentic, unwatered-down Judaism, then I think we'll have done our job. Amen to that. And I think that wraps our official first birthday party. So we should take a moment to thank all the people who have made this podcast possible. From the OU, we have Asher Tesser. We also have former executive producer Rabbi David Pardo. And now we have Rabbi Moshe Bransdorfer on the team. And of course, we have to thank our listeners who make all this possible. I agree with everything you just said. And I'd like to thank you, Jeff, for all your hard work and for making this podcast a lot of fun to be a part of. Thank you. Same to you, Gary. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.